what I really like doing is that thrill and the stress of the unknown going, hey, we have an idea. We want to do X. Everyone's telling you it can't be done and you have no idea how to do it. But is that going to stop you? Well, you're going to throw away many ideas because it's just the wrong side of, you know, you should be doing it. But at some point you go, let's give this one a go. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from, even learning some philosophy from Anthony Rose. Anthony is the CEO and founder of Seed Legals, and a large proportion of UK tech startups are now using Seed Legals on their journey to incorporate, raise funds, and even create share incentive schemes for their employees. In his early days, he was with Kazar, which was a file sharing business, music file sharing business, and he tried to help them flip it into what would have been the first successful paid-for music download business way before iTunes, but the music industry wasn't interested. So we talk quite a bit about innovation and why incumbents resist innovation and why that means that many of the businesses that Anthony's been involved in have been successful. He then moved on. Actually, he got a phone call, he said. He got a phone call from the BBC saying, can you come and help us create a thing, which went on to become the iPlayer. And Wired UK said he's the man the man that saved the BBC. And so great conversation with him today. The way I structured the conversation was to keep asking him, what are the jobs that only the CEO should do? And so we went through innovation and we talked a bit about that. And then we get on to culture and why, as you've got product market fit and you start to scale, really the most important job of a CEO is to manage culture. So we got some great insights from Anthony on that. And then we talk about how to get product market fit. Uh, when he's talking about the books he recommends people read, we talk about the mom test and then we get into some philosophy. So great conversation with Anthony. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hi, I'm Anthony Rose. I'm founder and CEO at Seed Legals. Once upon a time, years ago, I used to head up BBC iPlayer. After I left the BBC, I built a startup, sold it, invested in a few companies, got tired of paying lawyers, met my business partner now at a party in Rome, and uh, we decided to change it. So we built Seed Legals. We're now about 160 people. About one in six of all early stage funding rounds in the UK is now on Seed Legals. And our goal is to transform the way startups grow and build their companies. And do you want to 
take legals out of it altogether or the use of lawyers out of it altogether? The answer is, uh, before I say yes or no, <laughs> I, I think no. So here's the really the interesting thing. When you go to a law firm, you give them a problem and they give you a solution. And the solution is a pile of legal documents. What I've realized and only realized some way after starting Seed Legals is I thought I was going to transform the way we create the legal documents, which of course we've done. But I've realized that nobody is looking for legal documents. People are looking for a solution. And it sounds trite, but the solution is articles, webinars, data on what's market, a workflow that shows you do this and then do this and don't do that, uh, data that shows you what the valuations are. Are you the only idiot who's telling your investor you won't accept a deal term or are you a genius for selecting it and, and the investor is totally out of line? And so actually, and here I think, uh, you know, if you're in an industry where you're disrupting an existing old style incumbent, Think about the things that they value and how you can do everything completely differently. So for me, it's about always on platform, instant web chat. There's no charging by the hour or the minute. There are webinars. There's Anthony on your pitch deck clinic. You know, there's deal data. And all of these things show you what you could do. And by the way, incidentally almost, we create the legal contracts. And I think that's actually the definitive piece. And as you look at blockchain and smart contracts and things in the future, you will find people relying on new ways of doing things. And the contract is kind of, you know, something from the past. It will be done differently. Of course, we're not trying to replace the legal system. We're trying to help you do within the legal framework what you want to do, but in a more efficient way and show you what's right, what you're wasting your time doing and what's likely to succeed. Making you a destination of choice as opposed to what people would do before, which is they'd pick the least worst lawyer they could find. I mean, without dissing the competition, so to speak, I, I think I look at it a bit differently, which is you're a startup founder. Uh, you, you know all about dialysis machines or vegan ice cream or whatever it is that's your domain of expertise, but you don't know anything about fundraising. So what are you going to do? And if you find this cloud of nice people, content articles that show you what you should do in a round, here are the top things to raise, here's how to create a great pitch deck, here's how to share pitch deck, maybe one day here's how to find investors. These are the things that are interesting. And then incidentally, it will create the documents and so on that you thought you wanted, but they're just a byproduct of the other things. And that it's, you're solving a different problem, aren't you? That, totally that, different that, problem. That's right. And so I joke with the team, let's think, what would a law firm do? And then do exactly the opposite. And, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's really nice. I mean, again, it's nothing with law firms. And you may be in any number of businesses in an area where there's an existing incumbent. I mean, and in my uh, career, I used to be with Gazar, the music file sharing company, and it was really disrupting record labels and the way they sold physical albums and then CDs with online distribution. And then with BBC, it was broadcast. And then with my startup was social TV and so on after that. So in all cases, you might think about an incumbent thinks about the market in a particular way, and they define the things they do based on that. And if you can change each of those, you can redefine the market because actually people are often looking for something very different. And then the bit we're going to talk about in a few minutes is at some point, if you take your eye off the ball, 
for continuing to innovate yourself, you're going to find yourself dead because someone's going to out-innovate you. And so, for example, at Seed Legals, one of my the, the interesting things is I want to automate the, the documents for a funding round. So you say the deal terms you want, and I'll build all the documents. But what happens if one day people go, there is no funding round. We're doing it with NFTs. You know, so I'm, I'm thinking about the problem space in this world that I define is the world, but there may be these other worlds. And that becomes really interesting as your business grows. Which bets are you taking are sensible? Which ones are insane? And just the jumping the shark, so to speak, for those who know the phrase. And which ones, if you don't make bets, are you going to be dead in the long term? And also, I suppose, uh, how quickly is the future the future? And having an existing business which has a rev- revenue stream which is today and is and is still growing, you know, because there's something about innovating. You know, that's part of your brand. It's part of your personal brand and your business brand. If you weren't innovating, a you'd probably lose interest and not be here. And people are looking to you and the business to continue to innovate, but at the same time. I guess most of your clients are at some point you go past that sort of early adopter, cross the chasm, late adopter. They just want it to be functional and to work perfectly. Well, I think this is the challenge, which is at some point, if you're successful, you have to be careful not to drink too much of your own Kool-Aid. So it could be, I make cars successfully. I make rockets successfully. I'm going to buy a social network. Well, you know, <laughs> you, you, you've crossed over by, you know, just being maybe a bit too confident of your own abilities into a different problem space. And you may, past success may not be a, you know, forecast of future success in that space. And so, you know, for example, you know, many companies are thinking about doing crypto. Should I support crypto rounds? And and so what is the best policy? And by the way, I don't profess to know the answer. You might know the answer much better than me, but the way I like to think of it and tell my colleagues, and I don't say it's right, is I think about placing a number of bets. And it's a bit like you're playing a roulette. A bet could be a large bet that's fairly safe. So could you create extra products for your current customers or in an adjacent area? And that's putting like money on red. Or I might go, well, I'd like to do an NFT funding round. Well, I'm going to put a small amount of money on 26 and uh, it might have a big payoff. But I think, and, and I don't claim this is right, but it's it's a fun thing to say as the CEO in the company, I'm going to be the VC in a startup within a startup and I'm going to make certain bets and you put in CapEx on something and the kind of Perhaps the risk it is you're going to, you know, not bet the farm on it, so to speak. And then other ones where you can reasonably predict that it will have an uptake, you might then make a bigger bet on that. The CEO should only do those things the CEO should do. And so innovation is one of those things that only the CEO should do. No, it's the opposite, actually. So that's the problem in the old world, which is only the CEO did the innovation or the CEO thought they were doing innovation. They came up with ideas, but the problem is the CEO is usually a sort of older white male and uh, they they come from a world of top-down control and actually the old thing, which their company is often looking to change. And so initially they have a good idea, but at some point 
the ideas or the space has moved on from them and actually they need to hand over the reins elsewhere. So I think actually the innovation comes from within the team. And now your goal as a CEO is to harness the innovation from everyone. And if you look at two extremes, I think there's the Steve Jobs, Apple, you know, the messianic figure, but when he's not around, then it's a challenge for what's the next innovation. On the other end, there's Google, which is we're making so much money from search, everyone can come up with ideas. If you get 5,000 votes, go for it, we'll fund it. And so you have let a thousand flowers bloom. But the problem is Google then went and killed most of those projects because they didn't align with any key strategy or vision. So how do you find the right things? And, and I kind of like, I mean, my model currently is I'm the VC. So I love everyone to have ideas. Of course, I also have ideas. And then what I want to do is fund them and then stop funding them if they're not working. So, and almost let everyone know that that's the case. So, hey, we're going to create this SME product. We're going to launch in this country. We're going to have one of these and I'm going to put CapEx into it. And if it keeps growing, just like a VC, I should put more money into it. And if it's not growing, well, it was a fun bet. The word fun is probably inappropriate, but it was a bet we (laughs) hopefully should have taken. But in the scheme of things, it's not big enough that it's going to kill us. But we now should stop investing it because it's not working. But in line with your strategic direction and getting a return on the learning at least. Yes, that's right. So if somebody says we're going to, uh, you know, I guess this is the interesting thing, which is one of the key things I guess I've learned over the years is is to say no to doing something new. And in your initial stages, you uh, create some product and then a potential partner calls you and says, uh, I'd like to license this. I'd like to white label it. Can I use your APIs? And of course you see more revenue, you see more users, and you say yes. And then you, after a while, you realize that was a bad thing to do. So what I actually really enjoy is saying no, not for the purpose of just saying no, but if, for example, if someone says, can we white label seed legals? And the answer takes me about one second to go, no. And why do I say no so rapidly? Not because I don't want to or strategically, it's I've learned over many years that the API white label discussion is a huge amount of effort that leads to the company being schizophrenic in the way your developers work. Because half of your team are move fast, break things, go talk to customers, you know, ship on a Friday afternoon. If you break it, just fix it again before anyone notices, uh, have ideas, have fun. And the other half with APIs that are you know, enterprise partners, they are do not change things. There are SLAs, there are KPIs. If you change things, the partner will hate us and write to us. So they have to move slowly and validate. And it's hard to have these two parts of the business. So one of the things I I think uh, founders should quickly learn is to robustly say no to ideas. And that coming back to the discussion about the team having ideas, you want to encourage people to have any number of ideas. But if you fund any number of ideas, unless you've got unlimited amounts of cash, I think you'll end up killing lots of them afterwards. And your idea is, the goal is to have lots of ideas and kill the ones right at the beginning before they become expensive. And you encourage and guide people to have ideas. And maybe a great example of this is a couple of startups ago, we 
decided to have some hackathons. Uh-huh. And uh, the hackathon is the true, everyone comes up with ideas. And the first hackathon we had, I was impressed with the creativity but there was almost nothing that aligned in any way with what the company was, was doing. It was a lot of fun, um, but, but, but there was no output from it. So the second hackathon, I went, okay, team, you know, let's have a look at what worked and what didn't from the last. We had fun, but we didn't – none of the things we thought of have we actually done anything with. So how might we have a guided hackathon? But, of course, the problem is if, if the hackathons, just the CEOs, please work on these things for me outside of the normal sprint cycle, then uh, th- that, that's a rubbish use of hackathon. So somewhere in between, I think, is, is happiness, which is perhaps explaining the purpose, the mission, where you want to go, and within that world, have ideas. And what are some of these? How do, how do you test the amount of money you put in? Is that? And, and time frame. So as, as the internal VC, you'll say, this is a good idea. Okay, here's X amount of money and X time. Go and see whether you get through the hurdle and you can, it's almost like having a second round in for the idea. What sort of scope of time and money are you thinking? So it's a great point. I think maybe looks at it slightly differently, which is how much validation do you need to do before you put the money in? Right. So if there's someone's got an idea... I want to make, uh, let's say, on seed legals, we want to make a product for freelancers. So freelancers are looking for agreements and so on. Actually, you know, to research the top 10 agreements that freelancers are looking for, to find where freelancers hang out, to create those agreements is not a massive amount of work. So we can, if it falls within the sphere that's strategically interesting, the bar to progressing with that is not that great. But if the idea is let's launch in America, well, it's going to cost us a few million to set up a West Coast or East Coast office. And so we really need to validate it. So from my BBC days and talking to media companies who brought me in to talk about innovation, uh, companies always talk about innovation. And actually, innovation very rarely happens in in big companies. And that's why they go buy small companies, because they're not innovating themselves. And the more they talk about innovation, it's often the less innovation they're doing. And I think really innovation is encouraging your team to have ideas and then removing the blockers so that they can quickly decide whether to progress with an idea or not. And there, you, you want to set the bar really low to validate. So have an idea, great. We use usertesting.com, so you can, it's not inexpensive, but you can pose questions to testers to validate a design, an idea, whatever it might be. And uh, if you get, if you try, make a mock up, which is hopefully fairly inexpensive, and get some number of people in your target audience to try it out. And, and if that works, then that's, if it's a, a small developer needed, that may all be all you need to get to the next step. But if it's, you need to become FCA regulated crypto exchange, well, that's a two million pound investment and more work is needed. So I think a lot of it is if you can encourage your team to have ideas and create the path to get them live and, of course, guide them so that it's, it's a targeted rather than scattergun, then I think that's a good approach. And different teams of people? Because, again, I'm thinking about the schizophrenic nature of, you know, a run-operate business versus a, an 
innovate, agile business. You know, I was, I'm just thinking, you know, one of the stories that Netflix founder tells is, you know, he's in the business and the new team are there and they're saying, right, we're going to stream these movies rather than on DVD. And in the management meetings, the guys who run the DVD business are saying, no, but we shouldn't give them, we shouldn't give the money to these guys for this. Being 95% of our revenue comes from the DVD business. We need to keep investing in the DVD business. And he says, guys, it's great. Just stop coming to the management meetings. You know, go, go and stop your iceberg from melting as slowly as you can. And we'll get on and do this other thing. And so often in big businesses, you get that tension over resource allocation versus a future bet, which is unproven. So, Of course. So uh, this is the big challenge. And again, I don't claim to have the answer on it. Uh, I think it falls into two problem spaces. One of them is undercutting your own business because you think there is uh, some perceived new threat. And it's a real problem. And, you know, I think this is where banks, for example, leave the door open to new challenger banks. If the bank app that you use is so terrible that in frustration you use someone else's, the cost of the bank to make a better app is minuscule in the in the scheme of things. But because they don't encourage their team to innovate, the other one immediately goes, it looks like you're in France. We'll switch to euros. You know, it's a great <laughs> idea. But, but the other bank, the, the, the incumbent, has never thought of that. So thing one is about, which is really difficult, back in my Kazar days, I personally went with our CEO to New York to meet with the various uh, music companies. And we had a very nice uh, pitch deck that says, in the time it takes to read this page, 100,000 of your tracks have been downloaded. We could work together to sell these online. And instead of, and and the music companies were doing about uh, $6 or $7 billion uh, a year in revenue, decreasing at the rate of about a billion dollars a year because of the rise of online. And we thought being rational, they would go, great, the future is online. But in fact, what they had optimized is the future is us suing anybody (laughs) who wants to change our market. And it's more efficient for us to spend $100 million a year in legal fees to try and preserve our billion dollar decline than to embrace streaming. And it took them 25 years to finally embrace streaming. And uh, I guess that was the first lesson for me, which is don't assume that somebody, or rather someone's definition of rational can be different. And the exec at the music company was probably going, my most rational thing to do is to try and spend quite a lot of money to prevent the world changing. Whereas my take was as the tech guy, the world is going to change. Dude, you cannot fight change. You may as well embrace it. So so thing one is, you know, about your your team not wanting to undercut your own product, but it's a really difficult cost benefit. You may find that you're much on any given day, you're much better off not undercutting your own revenue stream for an expensive product with a cheap product until one day you realize you should have three years ago done exactly the opposite. And that's this human inability to see an exponential trend as it's developing and just to see all of those points as linear. And then by the time you realize that it's that it is exponential, it you can't catch up. It's well, got away the, from the you. The question is, is it a lack of looking at and understanding a chart 
or is it a sort of head in your sand, in, in the sand and refusing to accept a new reality? And when I was uh, in the broadcasting world with the BBC, and I'm not saying this was the BBC's fault because they were very innovative with what they did with iPlayer and so on. But when I went to broadcast conferences, there were people sharing stats with the rise of Facebook video and YouTube video and uh, the beginning of, it wasn't Twitch in those days, but uh, others. And the broadcasters would say, the video is rubbish, it buffers, this is low production quality, they're just shorts, only kids watch this, and they would define their pool of, uh, you know, measurable things as long format, high production quality, watched on a television set. And in their world, the world was great. Yeah. But I could see it's insane. The value of uh, Netflix or Amazon was spending more on content than the entire budget of the BBC quite quickly. So you'd have to be seriously misguided or in an alternate reality to not see the world is changing. But amazingly, the broadcasters still continued to pretend the world is was was, in which well, case the entire space got boring for me. And I, and I think the same happens in other spaces that you look at as well. The incumbents define their world. And I think this is the key for your company maybe one day finding itself becoming irrelevant because you define your world as the things that you would like it to be and you ignore other worlds. I think you're right. You know, I remember reading an article a little while ago saying that, you know, here we are a few years ago, all of these fax machines came over from Japan and you just had this, you just assumed the Japanese had invented the fax machine. And then it turns out that AT&T had invented the fax machine, but didn't do anything with it because it, they thought it would reduce the number of phone calls people would make. And they had the same thing about voicemail, you know, so innovative companies or even, you know, uh, Steve Jobs say, going to Palo Alto and finding a mouse and rank Xerox not being able to do anything with these inventions. So, so often you, a big company goes, let's get innovative, but then somehow lacks, you know, either the company lacks the the wherewithal to do something with it. I had a great conversation with a guy who'd spun three businesses out of Goodyear, the tire manufacturer. And he said he had to do a lot of educating to show that that it was worth it. And, and you're right, people just have this, it was changing people's frame of reference was what he had to do to allow the, so that the thing didn't get killed at birth. That's right. So if you, de if you define your world quite narrowly, then you're a leader in your world until you wake up and discover there's an all new world that has existed. And of course, for many companies, it may be the rise of crypto things that change their space or the rise of online. They think they're coming to my retail location and you're optimizing in this local maximum and missing uh, you know, a whole new world that's being created. But of course, in the, it's easy a decade later to look back and say, the world has uh, changed. We should have been part of it, but it was bit by bit. You know, well, Bitcoin, NFTs are crazy. Let's not get diverted on it. No one's really doing it. We don't understand it. And, and there's the, the, the tricky bit. Well, I, I remember when I, my first job at a university was a graduate trainee with Marks and Spencer. And I remember, I remember this, the CEO telling us all at a conference that we shouldn't, why were people obsessed about Next? Marks and Spencer's turned over more in men's boxer shorts than Next turned over. It was just irrelevant and would always be irrelevant. And totally missing the, 
churning your entire inventory four times in a season rather than twice a year was actually a different economic model. And uh, they've been going downhill ever since. What other challenges do you see as the CEO's job? So we talked about there about innovation. What else should the CEO be doing and only the CEO? What about culture? Is that one that you have on your list? The next job of the CEO is all about culture. So this is the key thing that you realize as you switch from purpose to performance. And I think, uh, you know, often CEOs uh, start off as, you know, a tech person or a product person creating a company. A couple of people get together, have an idea, and then you start building your team. And uh, you start off with a mission and purpose. Everyone you hire, you know, the, the CEO or the founders talk to them, get them on board. Uh, they've got the ear of the founders and they meet with them on a daily basis. And it's all about building stuff and changing the world. But the company doesn't make any money yet and uh, no one's buying anything yet. You, you, you're building. But at some point, it's time to switch gears because if you just have that mentality, firstly, it doesn't scale. And secondly, you're going to run out of money. You have to have people want to buy what you're doing. Otherwise, it's a great hobby fueled by VC money until VCs stop funding you. And so at some point, you realize this and you begin putting together a sales team and a marketing team. But then the world changes because sales team are led by KPIs, OKRs, and uh, targets and things like that. And what you're doing is you haven't realized it yet, but your business mindset, at least for some of the team, is switching from purpose. We want to change the world, disrupt whatever, to we're going to make we, our revenue target for next month is 10K to 20K, 100K, a million pounds. How are we tracking? What's happening? What's our PPC cost? How's our sales team being remunerated and so on? And then you realize that some of your early joiners may find a mismatch between what they signed up for and what the company is now. And some of your early joiners aren't reinventing themselves. So the, the one-off person running growth or CTO or whatever it might be, but can they now reinvent themselves to not be doing it themselves, but be building a team? Can the CEO reinvent themselves from the, you know, I'm sitting here in a tiny office with bean bags with three people to actually I shouldn't do any of these myself and I should be mentoring the team. And then the purpose part where the team are going, yeah, we want to solve whatever it is, is now often replaced by the goals. And particularly when you raise investment, you want to, of course, promise your investors some growth. That's why they're investing. And now if you fail to deliver it, then you start having rather awkward conversations. You may not easily get more investment later. And so you want to get to profitable or cash flow break even, particularly these days where valuations seem to be down and investment is harder. So this mindset, this gear change, I think catches many people out. And it's said that this might happen as you get to like 30 people, 50 people, 100 or somewhere in that zone. And I had been mulling over this as I saw in different startups, early joiners often becoming unhappy that the change in the business, hey, you're selling stuff. Uh, we, we didn't want to sell stuff. Well, you can't have a business if you don't sell things. And there's the problem. Selling things has its own goals and often doesn't align with making things. Uh, so I, I suspect many founders have quite a profound shock when they see this. 
and listening to this, for example, right here, and preparing for that is really important. What tips have you got? What do people need to do? Do you have to be really careful about hiring the sales director if they're not an early founder to make sure that you've really got, you feel like you've got the same culture? Sure. I think probably the starting point is that each of your early team members has to understand that uh, they have to reinvent themselves constantly to work in a growing organization or they won't be able to be part of the organization anymore and be sentenced to constantly be early stage team members in early stage startups and then never get to, to larger. Yeah, I think that's one of the most traumatic things that you see, isn't it? You know, like the sort of, there's that core 15 and you'd like that guy to be the sales director, that guy to be the CTO, that guy to be, you know, whatever those jobs are. And one of the ways I see it manifesting itself is people, they're a sole contributor, they're a, they're a technical expert. And then they end up running a team and they see their job as getting the team to get the work done. When in fact, their job is to make themselves redundant so that they can be promoted or move, you know, do something else. And they, they just go at the whole job with the wrong mindset. Sometimes they can't change that mindset, but sometimes if you just turn the lights on for them, I've seen people transformed in a week and go from being miserable, feeling like they're failing and burnt out to now I have a plan and now I can see what I need to do. And somehow there's, there's nobody in the business being able to go, you're just looking at the problem the wrong way. You're, it's not that you don't have the talent. I think that's exactly it. And how do you help founders and team members through that transition period? And I guess you're going to reinvent yourself again when the business gets larger. An investor in one of my previous startups was saying when I was probably hopelessly micromanaging everyone, took me aside and said uh, he was the uh, very large uh, companies and would transform the company and then exit and, and then do the next company. And he said, actually, he knows nothing about what the company does. And it's he's quite happy doing that, but he knows all about how people work. And his goal is to create a fantastic team of the best people and motivate them and coach them. And uh, it probably took like 10 years for me to mull over that and see that it was probably right as I we went through the anger, denial, acceptance phase. <laughs> Not quite sure I'm at the uh, doing phase yet, but I'm certainly at the acceptance phase. So um, how do you, in fact, wean yourself off some of the things you were doing to you know, create a, a team who, who can do that? And then your goal is to spread and share your values constantly with the team. Of course, your values might change as you have a growing team and younger team members and times change and you may not be with the times, but you, you started the business with a particular vision. It was successful, hopefully based on that vision. And now how do you have every new joiner share that vision as well? And at Seed Legals, do you have a story or some, stor some stories that you know, are the essence, you know, you hopefully when you tell those stories, people get a sense of what this is all about. So I think at uh, Seed Legals, my uh, mentoring, so firstly, I like to do the final interview with each new joiner so that, and I explain well, to them. How, how many people are you now? 160. Right. So a lot of CEOs will say, 
160, you're still doing the final interview. Now, I, you know that I would agree with you because we've had this conversation before, but, but lots of people don't like doing that and they get to about 10 employees and they're delighted never to interview again. So I, it's a good point. And at some point, I would think it doesn't make sense, but I explained to the person on the call that this is as much for them to ask me questions as me to ask them questions. And I look at it as a part onboarding. I look at it as a part as a talent acquisition. And, uh, you know, it's not infrequently that people will tell me, Anthony, I'm super excited we could talk. Actually, I'm interviewing with a few companies and you're the only one where I get to talk to the CEO and, uh, and I've got some questions for you. And I've got questions on culture and I've got questions on growth plans and I've got questions questions and competition. And I think what people often don't realize is I typically only have two questions for uh, the person. Most people joining Seed Legals, at least in our support and legal team, are law grads who study law and then don't want to work for a law firm. And I ask them, is it because they love the law but don't want a law firm? Or actually, they've studied law. They didn't really like the law. They're embarrassed to tell their parents it was a wasted degree. Hashtag call Seed Legals. Um, and then I ask them a, a legal question. But the rest is for them to ask me questions. What they don't realize is the questions they ask me are actually my indicator of whether they are right for the company or not. And so they might focus on growth. They might focus on a technical question. They might ask a, a question about the platform. It might be about inclusivity, culture holidays, whatever it might be. But I like the you ask me the questions. And, and then also at the end of the call, if we love each other, then actually part of my onboarding and sharing of uh, you know, values and so on is, is already done. Fantastic. It's, fu it's funny. I, Hurst Schultz, who's the founder of Ritz-Carlton, I was chatting to him and he was, he was explaining the minute detail of the daily huddles that happen in hotels. And I said, look, you're the COO of this amazing hotel chain, Global Hotel. How do you know? And he said, well, because whenever we opened a hotel, I employed personally all of the staff who, who opened a hotel. And so, you know, that he said, look, unless you obsess about that, unless you obsess about hiring, you don't end up with a great culture. Yeah. So I think, uh, by the, and, and by the way, when I do the uh, interviews, I think these days it's uh, like incredibly rare that by the time my team have done their interviews and it comes to me, that the person isn't simply amazing. And I'm constantly impressed with the fantastic people. But in the early days, there was a bit of a sticker shock. It's like, uh, I think we've got some people that are just not right for us culturally. The bar is wrong. They, you know, not getting the, the way we're working and so on. But then that spread amongst the team. So they now know which characteristics to look for. And, and the fact that there's almost a 100% hit rate means that that's working rather well. In your former world, before you joined the BBC, you were a pirate, but then I guess it's the BBC joining the Navy. How, 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 did, that, how did that come about? So uh, it's a long story. So have a cup of tea, sit back. <laughs> but but, but, but here's, here's the background. Once upon a time, you know, actually when I was uh, still at school, I started making my own uh, electronics and I set up my own business uh, building uh, circuit boards and so on in the days before startups were a thing where you actually had to run a profitable business because no one was going to, you know, do, do an equity investment. And then uh, I 
was in South Africa, moved to Australia, uh, was hired by a company to do real-time 3D graphics and was CTO. The company built a tech team, learned all about 3D graphics, and we built these uh, interactive streaming movies that would play on the internet in the days when people had modems and you just couldn't stream a movie. And then we had widespread distribution uh, across lots of media sites. And then the dot-com crash came in 2000, and many of our uh, target distribution sites went out of business. So we wanted to figure out how we could reinvent ourselves. And we thought we'd use our technology for advertising. Back in those days, it was sort of a race with Adobe, with Flash Player. They didn't have Flash yet. It was uh, Macromind or whatever it is, and Shockwave. And we, we had our own technology. And in order for advertisers to use your technology, it needed to be installed on lots of computers. So we looked, how can we get distribution? So we looked on... Uh, download.com where all the downloads happened. And we saw the top three applications were Kazar, Morpheus, and iMesh. And we thought, can we bundle our technology with them? And, uh, and that worked well. We got up to 16 million downloads a week. And at that point, I was bitten by the drug of people using your product. And there's nothing like waking up in the morning to go, how many millions of people have used your product overnight? So which continued back with iPlayer. And then every little change you make, you know, you're super motivated. If you break it, you've broken it for a lot of people. If you improve it, you've improved it for a lot of people. But anyway, we're doing real-time 3D graphics. And then we had this idea that we could develop additional technology for streaming music and we put digital rights management and then we integrate with the products. Anyway, one thing led to another. And my goal was to build a licensed music store actually back in the days before iTunes really existed, which we did. There was just a small problem. The music labels didn't want to license the content and instead decided that suing us was, was best as we go full circle here. But anyway... We eventually settled, uh, gave them lots of money, licensed the content, but really the terms of it made it impossible to have a you know, business. The, uh, whatever streaming, download, or whatever model, you'd have to pay so much it became impossible. And even Spotify, decades later, has, spent, has to raise billions to spend billions on a model that, that just is, is somewhat unworkable and maybe now is finally changing. But... Uh, then one day I got a call from the BBC to say, how would you like to join the BBC? And I went, I was living in Australia. The BBC sounds interesting, but where are the stock options? But I, <laughs> but, but I was persuaded. Um, and obviously they were looking for someone with, you know, um, experience with product development for millions of users in, in the media space. But uh, one of the interesting things I learned about myself is in Australia, I was working with a group of developers. You know, the, the business was 100 plus people. There were probably about 30 people in the tech team and I was CTO. And the way I worked with people, the way I interacted, the hours of day that I worked, the patterns, I'd, I'd have evolved something, a particular way of working. And uh, then I moved to the opposite side of the world, to a company that was not a startup, was completely the opposite. There wasn't VC-backed, it was a public broadcaster. And all the variables were different. 
But actually, I woke up one day a few months later and discovered that my entire way of working and interacting with people and things I was doing and time of day were exactly the same. So it was a fantastic sort of multivarious analysis to work out what was me and what was the rest. And at that point, I realized this is, I have just evolved this pattern. I don't know if it's right or wrong. But anyway, what I also realized was that what I really just love doing is I love turning an idea into a product, hopefully that people love. And it almost doesn't matter what it is. And so whether it be music or video or now legals, uh, what I really like doing is that thrill and the stress and of the unknown going, hey, we have an idea, we want to do X. Everyone's telling you it can't be done and you have no idea how to do it. But is that going to stop you? Well, you're going to throw away many ideas because it's just the wrong side of, you know, you should be doing it. But at some point you go, let's give this one a go. And then you grow to love it. I mean, if someone had said, you're going to be doing a legal tech thing, I went, that, that's kind of weird. Where, where does that come into it? But actually, the, the problem space is building a product and a service that consumers will love taking a different view in the same way Kazar with music and, you know, I play with uh, watching programs and see legals with, with legals, can you just rethink a problem space, come up with often a tech-based solution and then wander into the desert with enough confidence and enough supplies to know that you're going to come out the other side? Um, maybe not quite where you thought you were going to arrive, but, but if you can do that, then that is fantastic. Oh, brilliant. And so these many journeys you've been on, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I don't know if there's just one thing. I think uh, in no particular order, I think be careful not to raise too much money. I think in a couple of startups ago, I managed to raise many millions of pounds. And the problem when you do that, you begin to spend many millions of pounds and you're often building things before you've realized you've got product market fit. And so... Uh, you can easily uh, build a large team. And you see now, uh, whenever times are less good, the companies doing that start running out of money because they just can't raise again. And so my next startup, I was a lot more lean and actually with see legals with my co-founder. We initially funded it ourselves. And when the founders are putting their own money in, you, you, know, you rate limited in what you can do. But we agreed early on that we'd run a burn rate of let's say 40,000 pounds a month. So if you raised even a million pounds, we would sp we would spend or would be negative 40K a, a month. So we had two years of whatever runway. And as revenue increased, then we would increase expenses. And so actually we got to cash flow break even fairly soon and, and have stayed that way roughly since then. So I think thing one is people think that there's an endless supply of VC money, and you think that raising money is it's great for the ego. Uh, you know, you look in TechCrunch, you look at all the companies that raise money, and they each look like success. But actually, you realize raising funding is the failure to grow your business without having to raise funding. So if you can grow suitably organically, 
then without raising, that is fantastic. So you want to rate limit the things that you do so that you're not building up a huge data team and opening in 27 countries and doing all these products before you've got the revenue to broadly fund them. And then as the VC, you can begin placing your bets across the business with money that you've got rather than money that you don't have. And of course, at some point, it might make sense to raise more for big picture things. But, but again, I think uh, even though I'm with seed legals and help people doing fundraising, the goal often is not to raise more. It's to spend wisely and get to cash flow break even. Fab. And are there, are there books that people should read on this journey? There are many, many startup books, most of which I'm sure your readers have uh, read. I think the two, one relevant and one completely aside that, that come to mind for me. So the mom test is the one I always recommend. You know, many times I go to do a presentation to students who are looking to become founders or early stage uh, founders or accelerators, workshops and so on. And the problem is as a founder, Many founders are technical and they think that the problem to be solved is to build stuff. But actually, you realize years later, building stuff was easy. It's getting people to use it, which is, or want it, which is a difficult. And the worst thing is you built all the stuff and then nobody comes. So if you only, you could look back and have validated it before you built it. And so the mom test is all about finding the right people and asking them the right questions. Because what you'll normally do is, of course, you have to validate it. So you go and ask your colleagues or you ask your friends. You go, hey, I've got this amazing idea. Don't you think it's awesome? And you explain it. And of course, they say it's great because the way you've explained it and because they don't want to embarrass you. And so you led to believe that everyone's going to want it and you've spent hundreds of thousands of pounds and get people to follow on your journey. And it turns out, Nobody wants it. And instead, had you asked, how much would you pay for such a thing? And have you looked at for it before? And which other ones are you using? And if it turns out people haven't looked for it and wouldn't pay for it, either you've got some magic new thing, or more likely, it's a vanity thing. There's not a real problem to solve. And people are telling you hypothetically they love it, but they're not really going to change their behavior. And if you build it, then they're just not really going to come. So what could you do uh, differently by exploring with the right people? And the reason it's called the mom test is because you ask your mother, hey, mom, the amazing GPS-controlled blockchain-enabled bicycle lock, don't you think it's a fab idea? And your mother goes, I've no idea what my son's talking about, but he's such a clever boy. Of course it's a good idea. <laughs> so, so that's a, a, a bad thing. Separately, and completely unrelated, I guess probably, you know, the defining book for me is uh, when I was at school, I, I got bored with class and read lots of philosophy. I didn't understand most of it, but I did come across Bertrand Russell's uh, History of Western Philosophy, which was fantastic. And, uh, and I really think about, I, I think that was defining because when you've got uh, decisions to make in, in life, think about whether you're doing something out of self-interest for global interest, how altruistic you are and so on. And you know, one of the things I love from Bertrand Russell, which is if there are many solutions to a problem, often an ethical one, which is the best one? And perhaps the best one is the one to select that if everyone else thought the same way, the world would be better. 
And it seems completely irrelevant to anything that you might do, but it it's actually turns out to be highly relevant. So from, you know, if you're walking in the street and you see a piece of paper on the sidewalk, you go, well, if everyone picked up bits of paper, actually everything would be nicer. Therefore, I should just pick up the paper and move on because everything will be better. But, you know, at Seed Legals, one of the things when you start a, a business your problem is entirely technical. Can you build it? Will the server not fall over? Can you actually log in and will whatever it is you want to make work actually produce a result? But once you have uh, a working platform and you have users and you have scale, you now have the problem of being like it or not, God, and uh, and the things you do start affecting lots of people. And so you want to then design a good ecosystem. And obviously, we see the high point of this in social networks on their moderation policies and so on. But companies much smaller than that have the same thing. So on seed legals, if we say there's certain terms of default in a funding round, we know thousands of companies will build their businesses with that. And so the problem space is not simply always moved on from can we build a document automation platform to should we put this deal term in? Because if we do, people will select it. And I love the power and responsibility of doing that and also the forward looking that because of the volume of things you see you can and in fact are obligated to take a future view almost like you're playing someone's funding round a few steps ahead of where they think they're going to be and uh, for example you, it's occasionally people would contact us going uh, my previous investors, I just can't find them. They've gone AWOL. They're not answering my calls. My funding round is stuck. So what can we do? So we built into our documents the concept of you snooze, you lose. So if you can't find your existing investors, if they're not responding in 15 business days, their consent is taken as given. So it's one of these things where when you do this, are you creating a better world or a less good world? And you've got the power to do it, but you can't not use the power because that's wrong. But you then have to think really carefully about each thing you do. And and I really like that. And it, it anchors a complete tech play back into a philosophical you know discussion. It's interesting because I was thinking about this conundrum about AI and automated driving, you know, uh, trains going down the track with five people on it and it's going to crash. If it turns the points right and it, and it kills somebody, then one person dies and not five. And somebody done some work and said about 80% of people think it's completely reasonable to throw the points and kill one person to save five. But exactly the same thing is then suggested, which is you're on a bridge standing next to a large chap and there's a runaway train going down the track. You yourself, if you jumped on the track, wouldn't derail the train. But if you pushed the large guy next to you, it would derail the train, kill him and save five people. But not 80% of people would do that. And so you can even frame the question in a way, which is exactly the same from a logical perspective, but, but is, uh, and so again, it comes back to what's the value of philosophy? Well, people have spent thousands of years thinking about this. And so we're not the first people to 
pose the problem. People. That, that, that's right. But of course, few people are designing AI algorithms for self-driving cars that might have this problem. But many people have got these responsibilities in the companies that they create. And maybe if you're, for example, a you know food vendor, should you put more salt in it to taste better? But you know, is, is it a good thing to do? So you constantly have these. If you have a social network, should you encourage people to sign up or share more? It's good for you, but is it good for the world? And uh, you may optimize for different things depending on your particular you know, views and also the particular stage of your company. Maybe initially you optimize on growth, but later on you optimize for responsibility or the other way around. If times get tough, you never know. Yeah. Anthony, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.